Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. But talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Nerdist Writer Series. Yeah! Yeah! All right. All right. Condescending applause. <laughs> Welcome to the Nerdist Writing Series, uh, an informal chat about television writing and the business of writing television. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour um, a stage show in the style of old-time radio. For more information, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. Um, let's get right to it. Let me introduce you to our panelists. First up, uh, she's... Oh, I forgot to fact-check this before. <laughs> she's written on a whole lot of series in the last... Several years. Several years. <laughs> uh, including The Middleman, The Unusuals, and Standoff. She's currently a writer on NBC's Parenthood, please welcome Sarah Watson. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to this. Thank you all for coming out. (laughs) You're right. I'll thank all of you personally later. (laughs) How will you get through them all? That sounded dirty. (laughs) Our next panelist is a writer, director, and producer. His TV credits include the series The Black Donnellys, The Shield, and The Unusuals. Uh, He wrote and directed the 2006 feature film, 45, which starred Mila Jovovich. Most recently, he served as a writer and producer on the FX series Justified. Please welcome Gary Lennon. Coming this way. This guy has written and produced over a dozen TV series including Dream On, Third Rock from the Sun, The Simpsons, Grounded for Life, and Samantha Who? (laughs) During the most recent writer's strike, he made a series of popular web videos, uh, which led to a deal with Sony, whereby he would write, produce, and star in his own uh, internet talk show, which they're around five minutes long. Uh, They're totally charming and funny. Uh, Go check them out. They're called Anytime with Bob Cushell. They can be seen on Crackle.com. Bob Cushell is this guy. Hi, Bob. Hey, it's like a it's like a really uh, it's like a really good camp where there's like one counselor for every <laughs> four campers. It's like a very camp very good. We got a lot of kids. state yes. funding. <laughs> nice. It's a that perfect segue to parenthood. That's, what? Never mind. I made a, I made a really bad joke. Thank, <laughs> God, thank God we talked over it. Uh, and our final panelist, who looks terrified back there. The back, door, the back door is locked. Good luck. Uh, our final panelist has a background in journalism, uh, which she can tell us about making that jump. And uh, she also has done some directing and documentary as well as short uh, narrative features uh, in film and TV. She was a writer and executive producer on the hit CBS procedural Cold Case. Currently, she is the creator and developer and the executive producer of AMC's hit show, The Killing. Uh, Vina Sood is here. 
Uh, hi, you guys. Thanks for being here. Uh, I, I really do appreciate it. We're, we're going to have a great little chat today. Uh, what I'd like to start with, uh, as I always find it instructive, though everyone has a different story for this, is how you guys broke into the television industry, whether or not that was your initial goal, did you set out to write for television or for something else, and what the process of breaking in was. And Sarah, let's start with you. Uh, for me, I did not know this is what I wanted to do. I was at UCLA studying English, and I thought I wanted to be a teacher and save the world and write the great American novel in the summertime. And then um, a film class seemed like a really good, easy way to fill an elective, because UCLA has like a really big movie theater on campus. So I was like, oh, I'll go watch movies and get four credits. And I really dug it, and... Um, going to UCLA, I was able to get an internship and read a shitload of scripts and wrote coverage on them and then worked as a writer's assistant on a kid's show and somehow from that was able to get staffed onto an FBI hostage procedural. <laughs> that's, I think that's, you know, really for a lot of people, that's the natural progression is to go from Disney Channel to hostage procedural. What, let, let's back up a little bit before I forget about that. Uh, what was the kid's show and... Really, do you know what got you onto? Uh, yeah, my agent the told me that I had to write a dark sample, or I was going to be writing kid shit forever. Uh, so, did you wrote an original? Sample? Yeah, I wrote an original sample. I wrote an original um, pilot spec that wasn't even really that dark, but it was just darker than I tend to write much softer character stuff, and I love genre stuff. So, those are sort of like that's what's in my wheelhouse. So, I went as dark as I could, and it got me into the mm. procedural world. And then from there, Lipstick Jungle, because that's the other natural progression, <laughs> is generally to go from, you know, a pr hostage procedural to a Candace Bushnell series <laughs> starring Brooke What's Shields. next? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll go through the entire resume as we go on. Let's <laughs> not. Well, but, but there is an insane progression. Oh, yeah. It. It's, it's insanity, for um, sure. And we'll get to it. Okay. Uh, Gary, what about you? Um, I started, I lived in New York, I grew up in New York, and... As a kid, I wanted to be an actor, and, and uh, that wasn't sort of in my trajectory. I studied with really great people like Geraldine Page and the Neighborhood Playhouse, Richard Pinner, and I wasn't getting any work. And so I started uh, writing stuff for myself, and I started producing it with another friend of mine, a girl named Kelly Kane. We started a theater company, and honestly, it just I was very fortunate. I just was, um, I was sort of ignorant and didn't know. I didn't even graduate high school. I had a, my background, Sarah knows, is insane my parents both passed away by the time I was 11 and I was sort of on the street and didn't know how I made it where I made it but ultimately what I did was um, I started writing that experience and that's what I encourage all of you to do if, if you really I think it's the greatest way to get from just writer to creator is to write what separates you from the pack what you know and so when people read it they go this is the only thing that this person could write. Wow. And, and basically reveal yourself in the writing. And so that's what I did. I wrote a play called Rated X. <laughs> and then it was about kids on the street. And I was very fortunate. And I was literally at the gym one day. And I was coming down in an elevator. I brought a towel. I brought a towel around my neck. Exactly. And um, this producer said, uh, wow, that's a provocative title. And I was like, how are you doing? And he was like, yeah. And ultimately, they came to see the play. And I got my first job writing a movie for HBO and it was I was like wow I can't even believe this and I honestly got paid to do what I do before I knew what I was doing um, and fortunately I hung in there and got better um, but that is that was my journey I became a playwright and then I sold a number of my plays as films I spent about 10 years in the film business and sold lots of movies and then about five years ago started writing TV and I've been very fortunate and um, 
that's it. Hmm. Interesting. And we'll, again, we'll go a little deeper uh, as we move on. But Bob, how about you? Um, I always seems to know that I wanted to be a writer. I thought it was a director when I was in second grade. I was writing things to direct, but I didn't, I didn't know I was writing them. Uh, that, that that's what I was. And when I was in college, I had my own comedy group in Los Angeles. And I, uh, I, got, I got an agent when I was 19 years old. And they said that, you know, look, you're 19 years old. You're a junior in college. This is not going to happen for months or, I mean, years. You're, you know, have to graduate and do whatever. And within six months, I was writing for non-guild shows on, on Fox. And it was, it was just kind of a, a crazy time. And I was there for eight months at Fox. I chose to go there over being on staff at Nickelodeon because I always wanted to go through the gate of a movie studio i thought that was the most incredible thing in the world and uh, then i did animation for disney and hanna-barbera and then i went back to school i finished up my degree and i came out and i i got my what i like to say is my first like real agent who was chris silverman we were both 23 years old and now he's the president of icm it's just crazy um and uh i i my my um, journey in sitcoms was I started on Dream On, and it just has gone for the last 20 years. It's been very fortunate, very lucky career. That's great. Uh, what was, let me just step back a little bit, and what was, uh, you know, you were kind of thrown in, right, as a young, as a 19-year-old, to, and, had, and you had had writing in your background. Yeah. But were you prepared for the structures and the strictures of uh, writing for television? Um, I think so, because I, I, uh, it was like I was so obsessive about it. It's, it's like it's one of those things where it's like if you if, if it's just not in your blood, don't do it because there's ways to get a job that are much easier. So it was just always I was always reading about it. I was always writing. So when I got there, it, it felt like, and I had written. I think I had written in college twelve spec scripts for shows. So it was just like. I knew the form. I knew the format. So when I was when I got on to to dream on when I was twenty two, it's like I felt like I knew what I was doing. It was, I think that's the thing. You've just got to keep doing it. Keep doing it. You know. Vina, uh, what about you? Tell us about your background. Um, yeah, I w- I lived in New York for many years. I went to undergrad there, and then I went to grad film school uh, in New York as well. And um, when I got out, I got really lucky. I got a directing gig for The Real World, and it was exciting for about five months, and then um, it quickly was not. And I realized, I was just like, I'm going to slit my throat if I have to do this for the rest of my life. And I had met Tom Fontana when I graduated from NYU and he did Homicide and Oz and Oz was on at the time and I was a huge rabid Oz fan. So um, trying to impress Tom, uh, who was looking, who had looked at my directing reel, I was I was kind of like I'm going to write an Oz spec, having never written a television spec, and I didn't even know that there were act breaks. I didn't know anything. I was just like, wah, wah, wah. you know, the whole thing, like one long thing, and. Um, and you usually you don't do that because the showrunner or the creator knows the show so well that you should try to write something else because you will inevitably fail. Um, but what it did for me was just make me fall in love with television. And um, I had the Oz spec, and I heard about this thing called the Disney Fellowship in L.A. and um, sent the Oz thing in. And very quickly they said, move out here and we'll start, you know, potentially get you on a show. So I came out and got on um, <clears throat> Push Nevada, which was a great experience um, because I'd been so used to being alone, you know, as a writer, just writing and 
trying to get people to read it. No one would read your stuff. And to be in a writer's room was just amazing with really smart people. And, um, and then the show got canceled. Then I got on Cold Case and was on the show for five years and then created The Killing. Uh, tell, do you guys remember Push Nevada? Do you guys remember this show? Tell them a little <laughs> bit about that because that was your first experience. And yeah. I have to imagine it was a little unusual Yes. Was it not? It was unusual. I mean, it was a show that was ahead of its time. It was um, it was almost like Lost. Like, there was a mystery wrapped in an enigma in this strange little town in Nevada, and everybody, nobody was what they seemed, and it was very strange. Um, but the experience itself was amazing, because there were um, phenomenal writers. Jim Perry was running the room, Sean Bailey, Sean Bailey's show, and um, Joan Rader, Tony Phelan, Sean Whitesell, just who was an Oz writer, just all these like star writers were there. And here was I, the little baby from the Disney program, um, just, you know, like a sponge, just learning everything from them. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and Sarah, you also walked into, uh, were you a, a full writer on your Nickelodeon show? Or oh, were you on an Disney assistant? Channel? No, I was uh, a Disney writer's writer. assistant and I wrote to, they, you know, let the writer's assistants write a couple of So what, what was making the leap to, uh, the staff writer like well it was strange because it was such a i mean i worked for a disney channel show which was a, a sitcom essentially and i wanted to do drama that was sort of like my dirty little secret but i really wanted to be a writer's assistant so i when i went in and interviewed for the job i was like oh yeah sitcom is what i want to do and then like you know i'd be like at my desk between like on breaks like working on my like six feet under spec and like not <laughs> telling anybody about it and so it was a great experience working on a Disney Channel show is sort of like getting to be in like a sitcom room in the 80s but like totally safe because it's like all the like big writers who were like at the top of the world in like when sitcoms were you know prevalent and everywhere are a lot of them are now doing Disney Channel shows because there aren't as many sitcoms although it does seem to be swinging a little bit now so it was sort of like getting the like best experience with these like great sitcom writers but not in like a crazy like you know, the pressure of like being in Roseanne's room and which I had, I got to hear many fun stories and I'm glad I didn't have to be in that room. And, you know, and um, so when I went to a one hour drama, I went from, you know, that to my first network show was, you know, it was nine, there were nine of us on staff, eight men, me, who really only had, you know, kid show experience and had to, and we didn't have much of a room on standoff. We had a little bit of one, but I was really thrown in and on my own and I had to go in there and be like, yeah, I can do this. So it was, uh, you know, I went from like training wheel Disneyland to like, okay, go write your script. And it was uh, moderately terrifying. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm going to bring you back to that. Um, would you, I just want to uh, follow up on one thing. Would you say, and we talked about how you've been on a, a number of series yes, over the years. many, um, many. I'm is the black one? widow of network television. <laughs> but not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah, I've not broken anymore. the streak. <laughs> um, would you say there was a room that you were in that is sort of a typical room? Typical would be, um, the middleman was probably the most functional and that was probably the most typical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because that was that was really the first, like, phenomenally well-run show. Like, I did a couple that were, like, decently run shows. But, like, that was the first one that the trains ran on time. It was creatively energizing. Um, it's Javier Grigio Markswatch, who I know was on this panel a couple weeks ago. And he just ran a very creatively safe room. And so that was the kind of normal room, I guess, what you're talking about, where, like, you know, from 10 in the morning till 
six, seven, eight o'clock at night, we're just in there outlining stories, putting stuff up on the whiteboards and that kind of stuff. Um, Gary, I want to talk about the room on some of the series that you have worked on. Um, and we have to talk about The Shield and Justified. Yeah, these, absolutely. These are shows where everything came together. Yeah. I'm re-watching both of them. Yeah, They're absolutely. so amazing. Uh, what were the rooms like on these shows? Um, I was very lucky because on The Shield, uh, Sean Ryan is you know, probably one of the best showrunners ever um, and uh, really gives people opportunities. I had never met Sean in my life. I had directed an indie movie, you know, 45 with Mila. Sean had seen the film. I was, you know, uh, very fortunate. Again, we met. He was like, yeah, it's the last season. Do you want to write on the show? Did. I only had one TV job before that. I had sold pilots before that in development, but I had not. I only been on one other show, which was the Black Donnelly's. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so when I went on The Shield, it really felt, and, you know, that was an amazing show, and I was a huge fan of it and all of that. And so going in and walking into those writers was very intimidating because I just thought all of them were brilliant, you know, and I thought I was going to walk into like a group of like hell's angels, you know, with like tattoos <laughs> and, and they were just really smart, great people and fantastic writers. And like Vina, I felt very fortunate that I really felt I was able to absorb from them and learn about really crafting good TV. Cause Sean is amazing at, you know, writing to act breaks, an amazing guy who, he used to, you know, use the term to make things go sideways. And if you go into a room and you would break stories, you know, Adam Fierro was uh, one of the guys who ran the room at the time. It was the last season, and he's a great writer. But he, we would, you know, create stories, and then Sean would come in, and he'd sort of mess, mess them up. And I love one of the themes that Sean talks about, which is sort of like finding the gold in your mud, which is messy is good at times, you know? I mean, it can be really exciting. And, and I come from that kind of background from messiness, so I just was absorbing everything on a fast pace and... And um, it was a great experience, and it was very, very much, uh, you know, uh, ran, ran really, really well by Adam. And then with Justified, again, um, Graham is a very different showrunner than Sean, but equally as good in the sense that, you know, I got on that show because I had written a spec. I, was, I, wrote another, I, wrote, I sold another pilot to HBO, and Graham read that. We had a meeting, and then he hired me. And when we first got there, which was really cool, you know, the pilot had been shot, obviously, and the show was picked up. And what he was cool about was he was very open. He was not, there wasn't no sort of a preconceived notion. It was like the first year of a show where I was on the last season of The Shield, which everybody knew those characters so well. So, you know, you knew exactly what they were doing, really, they were doing. With this show, as a new writer to the show, we were able to really contribute to the storylines and craft characters and bring personal details of our own personal lives in those characters and sort of make them so we all felt a sense of ownership on them, those characters. You know, for example, the character of Boyd Crowder, which is Walton, is amazing, who was on The Shield as well. He actually was killed in the original pilot uh, that they shot based on Elmore Leonard's you know, uh, novella. And we, you know, when we came in, we were like, that fucking character is amazing. What are you fucking yeah. crazy? <laughs> He's got to stay around. And so, you know, as a collective group, we made that decision. And then, you know, then it was really cool because we just started talking about, like, what if it was your show and what would you do? And as a result, it was a very, as Sarah said, a very sort of safe, free environment that you could really bring yourself to the table and contribute. And, you know, that doesn't mean everything you say is going to be great. It means you pitch out, like, 14 things and two are really stellar and they land. And so it was a great, it's a great group of writers. It was a lot of fun. And um, season two got even better, I think. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Thanks. Uh, Bob, we've had some comedy writers in, on these panels, uh, but take us inside the comedy writer's room. How, how was your experience? Do you think it was typical of a, a sitcom writer? Well, I've worked, on, I've worked on so many shows and so many different shows from animation with, I guess, The Simpsons and last year American Dad to, you know, single camera shows, which is the bulk of my career. And, and, and actually, uh, of course, you know, Third Rock from the Sun, which was, which was my favorite place to be in my career. That Why was, is that? Well, that was like college. I mean, there were all these guys and, and women from different places and, and, you know, failed shows or bad experiences. And we were all kind of like beaten down and young. And, and we got there and we were all of a sudden writing for Bonnie and Terry Turner, who were just such remarkable, talented, uh, intelligent people who had created something with a very specific vision. But like you just said, that, that we all felt a part of creating that show too. There was definitely um, a part of all of us in, in the show. And um, it, it really was like college and it was like college. It was, I was a theater major and it was incredible for me because literally we would go off, we would write scenes. There would be, you know, after a run through or something, we, we, uh, we need to rewrite a scene. And I would go off with Christine Zander and Bill Martin and Mike Schiff, and, and we would come back in the room, and we would act out the scene for Bonnie and Terry. I mean, this is how it was, it was great. And this is what I thought comedy writer rooms should be. And they never have been since and never were previously. But it was incredible. And they would laugh, and, and then it was instant feedback. And then, you know, they would scribble some notes or go off and think about this. And it was like, it was like college. It was so much fun. And I really think that that fun and that excitement came across in, in the show. Um, it was also fun because it was a mid-season show. So we were working in a void where, where we didn't know how the grander audience was going to accept the show. It was just the people who had been coming in from, you know, groups that they find in Universal Studios to, to show up <laughs> in the audience. And I think that I, I look back at those 13 episodes as the, I think probably the fondest time in my career because we were creating things for an audience that didn't know what they were, what it was, didn't have any expectation, had kind, you know, had maybe seen John Lithgow as not a household name and certainly didn't know Kristen Johnson or French Stewart or jo Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And the reactions from that audience were so genuine and real. And if you look back on the DVDs in those first 13 episodes, when you hear the audience laugh, it's real laughter. And when you don't hear them laugh, it, it, we didn't sweeten it. It was like there were ebbs and flows. And then after the show aired, it was like the Beatles. The 14th episode, all of a sudden, everybody knew who it was and who these people were. And when they'd show up, people would get laughter for a look or, or a line that wasn't very funny or shouldn't have gotten the laugh it got. And it was not as gratifying because those first 13 episodes were real. It felt real. It felt like we were doing plays every week. Mm -hmm. And then once the Beatles were there and they could do anything, it, there was something that, that was lost, you know. But those five years were, without question, the best five years of my life in terms of writing. And otherwise, it really hasn't gotten better. Than it's actually left. How would you uh, how would you compare writing for a show like that to like an animated show like The Simpsons or Family uh, American Dad? American, I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's. I'm very biased because The Simpsons at the time, it was, you know, it's so funny because it was, I, I was there for the fifth and sixth seasons, which on most shows were the end of the run. And that was really just day one of The Simpsons. 
Um, and, um, you know, I, it was the holy grail to me to be there. I had written previously two Simpsons specs. Uh, I wrote a Simpsons spec. I was working at Fox when I was saying, when I, when I was 20 and they were just writing the Simpsons show at the time. And I would sneak into the executive office building and steal scripts that were marked literally confidential. And I wrote a script based on these <laughs> scripts that were being written that nobody else had seen. And um, but when I got there, it's like, be careful what you wish for, because at that time it was there was it was not fun. It was not fun. And this dream of what The Simpsons was going to be like for me was a very depressing making place. And that's why going from there to Third Rock was like the you know heavens opened up for me. What what made it not fun? You know it it's uh, it, it it to me it's always the fish you know stinks from the head. And when you've got a wonderful executive producer who's running the show uh, in a way that you like and you feel appreciated, but more than that, just good good show running, um, not wasting the staff's time, uh, keeping it on track, um, making it collaborative. It just felt like none of that was happening during those first two years. And it was a very difficult position. I was also this big drama geek from UC Irvine. And I was, you know, looking across the room at this this group of Harvard Lampoon guys who individually were all, you know, truly nice guys. And as a whole, they were, I'm sure, nice guys. But it was very, it was like this block, this quiet thoughtful, scientific block of people writing comedy. And it's just, that's not how I run. That's not how I am. It was a difficult, difficult two years. Interesting. Uh, now, Vina, you were on Cold Case for five years. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you learn from working on that show? And you're running The Killing, right? Yes. Uh, what did you learn from working on that show and, and executive producing that show that oh. you could bring to running The Killing? You know what? It's, um, I mean, just running a show is just, it's very managerial. So it was on Cold Case, it was just being able to, when when Meredith left and wanted me to run the show, it was just stepping back and having to look at the big picture um, and looking at all the trains running, running on time, hopefully. Um, so it's like, it, it just became very managerial, but then at the same time, you know, and it had already been created by Meredith. So she, the characters were there and I was coming in and running it in year four and it's a procedural, so there's a certain format. Um, so it was a great experience just to kind of learn those skills um and i mean it's totally overwhelming but you know it's it was it was fine um and then to be able to then go on to my own show and already have a lot of those skills um learned and then just it really freed me just to be like now we've got this block of time in the room let's just run with these ideas what do you guys think let's you know let's just play you know while we can because that train that bullet train of production mm-hmm. is coming right at us <laughs> but we got this time so keep it sacred let's you know blah blah blah, blah. Well, when you're thrown into that showrunner's chair and maybe we can take this apart just a little bit uh what are the things you need to consider what was the learning curve like for you and what you know what are the trains yeah i mean the trains are um i mean just ge- really generally there's um with a show that's just kind of coming up on its feet, there's pre-production. So there's all the mechanics of, you know, casting, um, hiring everybody from the cinematographer, you know, on down to building sets. What do the sets look like? Are they camera friendly? Oh my God, they're not, you know, pull that motherfucking wall down. We've got two days, you know, how did this get, you know, there's, there's inevitable mistakes in pre-production. Um, and then at the same time, simultaneously, you've hired all your writers and you're breaking story. And it's deeply, I mean, that is 
the most important point, you know, in the show is creating the whole arc of the series. And so you're trying to do that. Like it's multiple hats. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, then pre then you start shooting and all hell breaks loose. You know, you're just, you realize, oh my God, there's no, not enough hours in a day and this director's not working and what happened, you know, this person's having a meltdown. And so there's a lot of just juggling and then you've got scripts and they have to be, everyone's giving you notes on the scripts. Um, so yeah, it's just a lot of that. And then here comes post. Now you have to start editing, um, and going to color correction and going to, you know, mixing and yeah, I'm glad a is starting right now for me. Show running, it's not taught, you know, it's this thing where when you're a writer, you're writing because you're passionate about it because you love what you're doing. Mostly it's you're alone. You're writing scripts or spec scripts or whatever. And then you get on staff and you're writing alone and then with the group, whatever it is. But this show running thing, it's just a bitch. I mean, it's just, they don't teach you. They don't teach you how to manage. You have to be a manager of a staff. You have to be manager of a studio. You have to be a manager of a network and a crew. So you're managing four different companies at once. And the thing that I think matters most to you is the writing. You know, like you were just saying, you know, the writing. The writing is, that's why you got into it. But you're dealing with the emotions of this actress and the emotions of this writer and the emotions of this editor. And the emotions of this idiot, you know, network person. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, it's just your therapist and it's just, it's a lot of work, a lot of work. And it, I, I would imagine it is in many ways antithetical to what a writer does Everything. where you just sit there. Yeah, because you're the neurotic mess, right. you know, and there's nobody there for you, you know? So, so I mean, that's really the problem. There's nobody there for you and you're, 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 you know, in a, in a fetal position on a couch yeah. all the time. Yeah. So. Um, and while we're on, on the topic, um, you know, interviewing to get a job as a writer is also fairly antithetical to what it is to be a writer. You know, you have to go out and sell yourself a little bit. Uh, Vina, I would imagine you more recently than anyone else has hired a staff. Mm -hmm. What were you looking for? Um, I think, well, multiple things. I mean, the number one thing is a sample. You know, that's the biggest sell. And too many people make the mistake of not writing enough. So the <clears throat> the problem that I've run into is I'll read something original from somebody like a short story, great thing to write, 10 pages, 20 pages versus like 120 if you guys are writers. Mm -hmm. um, Mick Showrun is really happy. Um, <laughs> and we can hear your voice pretty quickly. But then it's like, do they have, they've submitted for a cop show, do they have a procedural? No. Well, what do they have? They have something else. And you just, you need more. You need, so like you said, the 12 scripts, like write your heart out, write like 15 things, write short stories, write plays, you know, one act play, you know, a procedural. I mean, you have to write what you love, but you got to, you got to write. I mean, that's ultimately what you're going to be doing on staff is writing all the motherfucking time. So there's no excuse now that you're, you know, that you're not staffed to not have 15 scripts. Um, and then, you know, once you're in the interview, just keep talking, like have solutions, you know, have ideas, you know, be enthusiastic, you know, and because that is ultimately what the room is, is people, like you said, pitching 15, 20, 25, 30 ideas a day and none of them going, you know, and then coming back the next day and not being hurt, but just being like, oh my God, what about this? And riffing off of other people. So those are, that's really important. Well, being hurt, but still yeah. doing that. Not showing up, yes. Definitely, definitely hurt. <laughs> devastated. <laughs> um, Vina, you're saying, you know, you have to write what you love on this original material. And Gary <clears throat> said a similar thing, you know, writing what you know. Now, Sarah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're on parenthood. Mm -hmm. what? How many kids do you have? 
Zero. <laughs> Uh, was there any trepidation on your part, on their part, when you came Definitely on board? Definitely on their part. I was, I think I was one of the last people hired on Parenthood, despite being, I think I was the very first writer to have a meeting there. Because Jason wanted to make sure he assembled a staff of people who actually knew about kids. I mean, I, my agent actually has two kids, and I was, I said something to him about, I can't remember what it was, like something about, can't you just like drug them when you put them on, like, and then put them in like the overhead bin of the plane, because he was saying how hard it was to travel. And there was this pause, he's like, I got you on a show called Parenthood. (laughs) But yeah, no, so I definitely think on the showrunner's part, Jason really wanted a staff of of parents, but, um, and so we do, but... But I, you know, I have emotions, I have a family, I have parents, so I do feel like I'm able to write that. You know, I wrote on a superhero show, and I've never been a superhero, and I've also never been an FBI hostage negotiator, and I wrote the shit out of that one. You could have my kids. <laughs> Every, that's the other thing, is everyone offers their kids, they're like, oh, take mine for a day, you'll have a million stories. I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'll just read Fit Parenting Magazine. Uh, Gary, same question. Have you encountered in on uh, the shows that you've worked on that hurdle? You know, where you don't have an immediate association, you can't relate. You know, uh, literally to the characters. How do you how do you get through them? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Vina that that you should. I mean, there's no reason to not be writing if that's what you do and have all kinds of. I mean, we have very different interests, right? I mean, when Graham was staffing for Justified. I didn't have a Western. I didn't have a you know a script that took place in Appalachia, but what Graham looked at when he was staffing was you know your voice as a writer and your strengths. And I think when you're in that meeting in the in the and you're with the showrunner, I, I love going on a show that I'm passionate about because I'm like one of those crazy people who loves work. Like I you know I'm like I'm boom 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 boom. boom. I'm just like pitching my ass off. But the thing is, is that when they're reading you and they'll, they'll hear your voice, when you come in the room, it's like, have ideas about, and don't be afraid that you might have the wrong idea. I, I think that you just have to, you know, I think that when you embrace yourself 100% uncompromisingly and tell them who you are, they're either going to get you or they're not. And the great thing about being a writer is that we're not for everybody. And the sooner that you realize that, I think the easier it all is. It's just be yourself and you'll wind up where you're supposed to be. I mean, I actually everything that I've ever written, my original material, my agent, I wrote an old, I wrote a, a feature about an old Italian woman who's a bookie because my mother was a bookie. Great script. <laughs> and, um, and I and you know my agent was like, why are you writing a fucking spec about a woman like a sixty or five year old woman who's a bookie and she books numbers with her grandson? And I was like, I have to write that script. Like I really meant that seriously. And I and like it, it went out and everyone was like, oh god, it's fucking old lady and a kid. <laughs> and then I sold it, you know. And it was so fulfilling to do that. So when you go into a room. You know, you might, like, Graham and I, well, we guys are going to go sit at a bar and have a couple of beers? Probably not. But um, there's mutual interest. There's a common denominator, you know? Um, and, and, if, and if you just are yourself and someone sees that, they're going to pick up and be like, I want to be around this person. They have some really fucking good ideas. You know, we might not, like, hang, but they could, it's about translating your passion, you know? That's what I would recommend. And I really do recommend, like Venus said, like, I, I just wrote a play after not having written a play in 10 years. And TV, it was an incredible experience for me because TV is sometimes you feel a little handcuffed about what you can and cannot do. And I wrote a play that came out of nowhere and I'm excited about writing it, you know? I mean, I think that that shows on the page is when you're excited about writing that thing, people see it, it's universal. You respond, you go, boom, oh shit, this person wrote that because they knew it and I feel it. And that's exciting. I know when I read specs and I read someone's material, 
I want them to educate me about who they are. And I, and it's like, I love like seeing a world that I've never known before. It'd be about horse racing or whatever prostitution. I learned a little bit about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? It's just about getting the thing that you're really excited about. Anyway. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, Bob, how do you do that? How, you do able to, how do you do that? Were you able to put yourself in any of these series that you? Oh, every on? every absolutely every single one of them. How I mean, so? Give Dick, us some examples. Dick Solomon was me. This, I mean, at that time, maybe I don't know, but I mean, John Lithgow looking at himself, just going, "I'm gorgeous." I mean, that's me as a joke, but it's me in reality. I mean, it's just me. It's just like thinking you're so great, but then thinking you're just the worst in the world, and and just all of that stuff and the way they looked at life. I mean. I still feel like I look at life like a little kid. I still feel I still feel like I'm a staff writer. I still feel that way. I think that is so much fun. I mean, you I get excited. I'm like excited about this world still. I still want to put a show on in the barn. I mean, I did with my talk show. That was putting a show on in a garage. I mean, that was fun for me and I really that their excitement about life and all of that stuff, I, I think that resembled a lot of, of what I am. And, and I gave a lot. I gave everything I had to that show. Um, I mean, you were just saying about, about writing, uh, you know, original material. I sat down a couple of years ago. I, I said to my agent, I said, what do you think I should do now? I mean, where am I? Where am, what am I? He said, you should write a dark comedy. And I immediately sat down and wrote a script that now is just paying off and, and they're going to make it at the BBC. Whoa, I just found out congrats. last week. That's yeah, awesome, very excited. Really? About three guys who start a business of assisted suicide. God. It's called. Whoa, yeah. it's, a, it's a feel good show. Yes, it is. <laughs> right, and it's so called. It's called Way to Go. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm so excited. I mean, I did it because you know, did I want to transition into cable comedy or whatever? I needed something, and I, and I just sat down and did it. it. Just came out, you know, and it was. It, I guess it was. It's worked, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Vina, the same question. I'm curious, especially about something like Cold Case, which is very procedural. Uh, were you able to put yourself as a writer in this show? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 across the board what everyone's saying. Just I found the thing that I love, and it wasn't like, oh, I want a job on the show, so I'm going to write it. it. Was I was already writing dark murder, homicide, dead children under the basement stairs. I mean, I was just attracted to that material from day one. And ironically, my agent had said, and this was a, a an agent in New York who didn't really know the industry way back when, when I was still doing reality television. And she said, I'd done an Oz spec because I you know, wanted to write Oz. And she's like, oh my God, that's so dark. <laughs> that's so dark. And like, no one's going to want to read that. And, and and can't you write a comedy and, and can't you lighten up and and, and, and I was just like I was like really and she's like yeah people want to see versatility they don't want no one wants dark like the world is changing and you shouldn't do that and I and I said okay so you know uh, Sex in the City like and I and that's not me and I tried to write and it sucked and the Oz thing went out and that was what everybody was responding to and it was and I would walk in and people would be like. You wrote that spec. Holy shit. I mean, it was really, and it was really, like, not, it was, like, Oz times 10. Like, I even went, like, really far. And, and, um, but that's, and and Meredith read it, and she was like, holy shit. She's like, awesome, come write for Cold Case. And so it's just, like, right, you know. And that's so funny, because I had the exact opposite thing, where everyone was saying to me, write dark, write dark, write dark. And I wrote this Gilmore Girls spec, because I love the Gilmore Girls, and that's what got me on Parenthood. 
Well, and it's like a, like a seven-year-old spec. Mm. I think Rory was applying to college in my spec. <laughs> yeah, so oh, it is. Yeah. It's write what you love yeah. and what you know. And I think even if you're not writing a situation that you know about personally, you're bringing your emotions to it. Don't try to fake the emotions. You can fake the situations. You can do all the research about any world you want, but you're not going to be able to fake the emotions. Um, I want to ask, I only have a couple more questions, so I hope you guys are ready with questions. Mm. Um, but I want to ask again, uh, Bob and Vina, just because you guys have worked on um, these shows that, again, especially Cold Case and so many sitcoms too, which are, uh, I don't want to say they can get samey, oh, yeah. but, <laughs> you know, sure. you have to have a lot of plot in those, in those kinds of shows, uh, whereas something like Justified or The Shield or parenthood or yeah there, there's a mythology and it's very emotionally driven uh what drives story where does it come from how do you when you all get in the room yeah and the stories start uh coming you mean, out what, of everyone what literally drives it or what keeps the writer getting it up every day for the same the thing? second one and then the first one. okay um <laughs> the second one uh again if you can find the thing that you love like I, we all the writers would come in at the beginning of the season on cold case and be like i just read this article in the new yorker about some blind girl who stabbed her you know her mother and it's such a great article because da 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 it's about a child being you know manipulated by her parents and and so you would just come in with like 10 really good things that you were deeply passionate about um and even though the format was hugely plot-driven and you had to write to the act break and it was just plot and it was not character except for the dead person, um, you you were excited about the material. So that was that was fun. Um, and then what drove it? I mean, what drove Cold Case in particular was it was a very it was it was the same format. So there was not there was not like. I mean, it was more challenging to do a serialized show because you aren't in, you know, you aren't kind of going lockstep with, you know, with a procedural. It's like there's three flashbacks in each act and there's the discovery of the thing and then he turns and they turn and this, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's, it was, that was, yeah, that's how it went. Uh, and Bob, what about, you know, finding material to be funny? I, I, I just opened that big book of, of, of what other people did on television and just do that show <laughs> for the other show. No, I, you know what? I, it, it comes, I think it comes from the same place as dramas, the news, what's going on in your life. It's just, it's all the same stuff. They, you know, they just look, view it through a different prism and we just view it through uh, a different prism. Um, I can't remember. I, I can, I know breaking stories, but, and I, I think that's one of my, the thing, one of my strengths is breaking stories, but I can't picture really where stories come from. I, I mean, I've never been on a staff where you go, bring in 30 ideas tomorrow. It just comes from the talking and, oh, that would be good. And oh, I got an idea for this one, you know, a one liner about, you know, whatever it is. And it just keeps going and then building and building and building. I just, um, I think if I had to sit down and go, I need to, I always hate doing that. I always hate coming up with five story ideas. I love sitting around with the staff and it just comes naturally. Um, I kind of envy a, a, a show though that has a mythology because it just feels like you've got somewhere to go as opposed to having these, you know, things that, that have to wrap up at the end of every episode and everybody has to be back to where they were. And that's what's, and I hope, and I think comedy is kind of moving away from that a little. You know, I think Friends started sort of a mythology and, and you know, a, a non, 
linear storytelling. Is that right? Is that the word? Not non-linear, <laughs> non-ending. I don't know how to write. I don't know how to talk. But having having those long story arcs in a yes, comedy. Long, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Arcs. Yeah, yeah, Thank definitely. Uh, and let's talk about the shows that do deal with the mythologies and the histories of the characters and that are emotionally driven. Are these stories derived the same way? Would you say? I think you know. I mean. For uh, Justified, it, you know, at the beginning of the year when we came in and we talk about the characters and, you know, generally, we off, sometimes, I think both years in a row, actually, we didn't actually know exactly where our main characters are going to go, but they're a signpost. You know, we, we have big moves, like three or four really big moves, and we know we got to get there. And the route there will take different changes. It's just like when you're writing your script. You know, you know what the midpoint is. You know what your act break is. You know, but the way that you get there is where the meat is, where the gold is, where the, the fun is, really. And so... We all talk about, I mean, I think in this show, which was really great experience, is that, you know, we all talked about our own personal lives and then brought that to the characters. And what you just said is the most fun in, in the writer's room. And I think that's why, I mean, I like the writer's room. And you have a lot of fun. You talk about each other's <coughs> lives and then you start peasing and be like, oh my God, I love that you did that with your wife. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. And then you bring that in and you use it and you see it and you it sort of reveals itself. And even thematically, a theme will resonate out of all the storytelling and you go okay the second season is about second chances bam that's it we it's not like you write on the board second chances and then you build to that it sort of reveals itself and so you know for example in the second year of justified you know when boyd gets together with ava at first when that was first pitched out there was like a lot of reaction to like oh my god that can't happen we have to protect the character of ava and would we like her if she does that and and I remember like um, pitching that out and, and, and hearing like, oh my God, that makes my stomach uncomfortable, like the idea that she would wind up with him. And they were like, oh, so I like that. You know? yeah. And then you, you, you go and then you really embrace that and then you build to the end on that. So you know, you know where your character go, going sort of, or at least you talk with your showrunner about, it's his vision of the show. I mean, ultimately, yeah. Vina is the vision of The Killing. Graham Yost is the vision of, of Justified. But you have all these helpers sort of help you get there. Um, and I think it's a lot of fun. Interesting. Has it, that been your experience on Parenthood? Absolutely well? on Parenthood. I mean, that shit is 100% ripped out of our lives. Like, <laughs> I mean, stories that actually happen to people. I mean, I, frankly, I've survived some of the marriages of my right, fellow writers have lasted. Um, but, you know, especially a lot of the stuff with Max, the son with Asperger's, you know, Jason, who created the show, has an autistic son. And so many of those stories just come from small moments in his life. Some of them he doesn't even bring up as stories. He'll just be talking about this happened. And we'll be like, uh, is it terrible if we use that? And, you know, working in the Parenthood Writers Room, it's been like no other writers room I've worked in because it is, it is like group therapy. I mean, we've dubbed it Cry A Lot Wednesdays because somebody ends up in tears on a Wednesday being like, and then my father, you know, and it's just, it's that kind of show where, you know, you just really open up and bleed on the page. And mm. some of the, the, I've shared things in the Parenthood Writers Room that I, it's, my best friends don't know. It's really kind of insane and sick. And some of the stuff, it's funny because I haven't even realized lines I've written are things that come out of my life. Because, like, my dad was watching one of the episodes. He's like, I, I said that. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> so he got credit on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now he wants shared credit. And it's like this WTA arbitration. arbitration thing. And there's lawyers involved. And... Um, let's talk for a minute. Uh, Gary, you were saying earlier that you just got done developing your own material. Tell us about that process. How was it for you? You know, I, I love it. I mean, that's ultimately, I think we all want our own show, you know, um, and uh, and it's okay to be on staff and be in service of someone else's vision. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, we want to tell our own stories. And I've been very lucky in the sense of 
setting up a pilot almost every year in the last five years or two even. And um, I mean, basically, it all starts with what do you want to write about? What, what are you feeling? And then, you know, we, what you do is during development season, you partner with somebody, a producer or, or a studio, and you start riffing about ideas. You know, what do you want to write about? I love your freaking BBC thing, though. Like, I'm yeah. like all over that. Oh, I love nice. it. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it's very cool. But, you know, nice. you just start, and it's fun. Like, you develop with Nancy Cotton and Dave. And what's exciting, you go into these rooms with people, and <clears> you start <throat> talking, and they go, that's cool. I like that. And you start building. I, I just developed with my producers on um, Justified, Sarah Timberman and Carl Beverly. We set up a pilot together at, at um, CBS. And... They said, you know, Gary, we want to do a female cop show with you. Um, and I come from my parents were criminals. My brother was a dealer. One of them committed suicide. Blah, blah, blah. Craziness. And so they were like, I was like, but CBS? <laughs> <laughs> and, and ultimately, though, I did my version of that story in CBS. And what I did was I created a character, female, that I completely identified with that I loved, but who had a criminal parent, you know, family. Her father was serving time in prison. Her brother was just getting out of prison. He was moving in with her. She was getting a divorce, and she was just promoted. You know, great character, I think. You know, complicated, you know, flawed. And then <clears throat> implementing the, the procedural on that, because CBS is pretty much all procedural, you know, and that's not really, really where I go like, oh, my God, I can't wait to get up in the morning and find out that the butler did it. You know? <laughs> uh, but um, I did my version of that, and I had a great time this year developing there, and um, I wrote a procedural that I really liked. And I'm, I'm, that was, you know, that's that kind of experience. Last year, I sold a pilot to HBO that was about really uh, my mom. I was about a woman whose husband's a criminal, dies in the pilot, and she sort of, was sort of Ma Barker. I don't know if you know Ma Barker's story, but it was a woman who used her children as her henchmen and sort of developed a crime family mm. through that. But it was seen sort of, uh, the way I sold it was, I said, I sold them the first three seasons. I said, this is it. The first season is Hamlet seen through the eyes of Olivia. Um, the segment of Olivia being Tony Soprano's mom. And then the second season is sort of King Lear. You know, they've built an empire now. How am I going to disperse the wealth? And the third season is Medea. There's a child. One of the sons has gotten, he's become a weakness and he can't just the family. We have to take him out. And, but I love, I can't even tell you how much I loved that show. And, Me too. um, right? Yeah, wow. Yeah. It was great. And it's my favorite script ever. Please, someone do it. <laughs> and, you know, when I can tell you this, all of you, if you walk into a room and you don't really love the show that you're pitching, it's dead. Yeah. Dead. But if you fucking wake up and you cannot wait to tell someone this story, like when I'm going out pitching, I talk to a cab driver because I do not drive. I talk to people I'm hiking with. I talk to everyone about it so that by the time I walk in the room, it's not like a rehearsed monologue or something. It's like I cannot wait to share the story with you. And they feel that, and mm -hmm. then they pay you to write it. And it's a joy, literally. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's a great way to, to put it. You, it. It's a story you have to tell, and you do tell over and over. Yeah, right? that's, that's really valuable. Uh, Bob, what has your experience with the development been? Um, this year, I, I, it's so funny because I've, 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 I think I've written 12 pilots, and nothing has gotten made. Um, I wrote three this year. I wrote a pilot for Fox, which was a... Um, Animated show, basically about my, my life growing up in the valley. I wrote a, <laughs> I wrote uh, a one-hour drama, my first drama, uh, starring Adina Menzel for the for ABC, and I wrote a half-hour multi-camera comedy for NBC. And you know, I believe that there is a life for what you just pitched, which is just so fantastic. Because what happened was, they were all passed on. 
But within three hours after ABC passing on the Adina Menzel drama, ABC Family wanted it. And wow. I'm going to be, I think we're going to be making that in November. And then, uh, and then a few, a couple months after NBC passed on my comedy, uh, I got a call from Tracy Katsky at Nick at Night, who is going to be uh, producing, sorry, uh, producing uh, half hour multicams. And looks like they're trying to make a deal for that now. And then with the uh, way to go, it's, I mean, all of a sudden it's, it's like an embarrassment of riches, which is, I mean, it's crazy, but it rains of pores. It's been wonderful, but it's just that writing, you know, it's like every year when the pilot or two pilots that I write get passed on, I turn to my wife and I say, I can't, I'm not doing, I can't do this anymore. It's over. It can't do this again. And she goes, yeah, bullshit. You know, and then I do it again. I do it again. And it's like, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, but it looks like finally I'm getting some different results. So. It's, uh, I, mean, I guess I'm not so insane. <laughs> well, not because of that. No. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Uh, Vina, tell us um, briefly about going, uh, developing uh, the killing. Um, I was in the middle. I had just left Cold Case, and I wanted to. I knew I wanted to do something very dark and for cable and character-driven um, and with a mythology versus a procedural. And uh, my agent told me about this Danish format, and she said it's called The Killing. And immediately I was just like, oh, my <laughs> God, i got to watch it. And I watched the first three episodes, fell in love with it, and said I have to do this. Um, so basically I started with Fuse and just came up with the dorky, 50 cards, you know, this is the character, this is the world, this is what happens, you know, and then this is how we're going to riff off of the original Danish series, and this is what we're going to do differently with a family. Um, and then it was just jumping over hurdles. It was Fuse and I kind of, we, we knew we wanted it to be at AMC, so immediately that was the first place I pitched. And within about three weeks, they bought it. And it was really excited. We knew we were going to go to pilot. Um, and then the, that bullet train just started. And it was really fast and furious. And it was better than network, from what I've heard, because network is like a month turnaround for pilots. Um, and we had about two and a half to three months where we had to cast and hire and figure out where to shoot and figure out what the look was and who the director was. Um, and it was it's just a matter of when you get to that point and you're 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 gearing up to shoot the baby that you are just about to have with like 10 hundred other people. Um, it's just falling in love. You know, it was just, a, it was it, it, constantly what I heard over and over was just follow your gut. So when Patty came in, Patty Jenkins, who directed monster and she was uh, in the running for directing the pilot and she'd never directed a television pilot. And this pilot was huge. It was gigantic. Um, she came in and she talked and we sat there for like four hours and she walked out the door, and we had met with everybody in town before then, and I knew she was the one. And I was like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. And um, again, because she had never done a pilot, it was humongous, and um, just went with Patty. And, and that was, again, it was just do what you love, follow your gut, follow what you think is best. Because the number one thing is when you're, when you're about to shoot the pilot, when you're going to series, everyone's got an opinion, you know, from the network all the way down. And all those opinions can be very, very valid. But ultimately, you know, you've got to remember, like, what... And I, I read somewhere, someone sent me a letter that uh, a showrunner way back in the day, I'm so bad, creator of MASH, um, would... Gilbert. Yes. 
And he said, um, it was, it was a letter that I think he wrote himself at the beginning of when he would create something. And it was, um, remember, this is your story. Remember, this is your vision. Invite everyone in who understands it and is on the page with you. Um, and politely decline people who aren't, you know, with no maliciousness. They're not, it's just that everyone has an opinion of what will work. And everyone's intentions are good. Um, but you're not here, you know, as 10 chefs creating, stick, all sticking your fingers in the pot. Because it would suck if that happened. But you really have to just be really clear and and be and from the very beginning before you get on that train, you know who is this? Why am I writing this? What do I love about this? Just the essence, you know, within like one page, and put it away. And then when all hell breaks loose and everyone's telling you who the fucking character is, then you can open it up and be like, oh yeah, this is why. This is why I did this. This is. And if no one else likes it, Meredith Steen said a really important thing to me once. She said, you know what? If they don't like, and this was before Cold Case became a hit, she said, if they don't like it then that's fine but this is all i got you know this is me and um and that's all i know you know so that was a really great advice, piece of advice ma'am while we're on the subject of advice um i've i've told uh, the crowds the massive crowds in the past uh <laughs> that my background is my writing partner and i have developed one or two scripts uh every year for the past six years for various entities uh this year we had had enough and uh, starting tomorrow, we have our first staff job. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's enough. Uh, what advice do you have for me starting tomorrow? <laughs> be nice to everybody, especially the support staff. Mm-hmm. Just be nice. Be nice and have a lot of Did ideas. you learn that the hard way? <laughs> yes, I was a raging bitch. And now that PA is running NBC. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, yeah, I mean, your first day going in, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's really typical. It's first day at school. Um, I mean, just do a good job. I mean, do your best, you know, really bring, don't, don't be lazy. I mean, there are people who just feel entitled, you know, and they show up and they think being there is more than enough. That's not true. Be your best, you know, just bring your A game every time. And I have to say, it, it's really easy to feel lazy because you feel like you worked so hard yeah. up until then. Right, and I think sometimes this is a, a, I think some staff writers, when they get a job, they, they feel like, oh, well, since I'm the staff writer, I can sort of be quiet and lay back. And it depends on your showrunner. But if I've hired you to be a staff writer, I want to know what you yeah, think. Say something. You know, I mean, I remember actually on, well, on one show, there was a staff writer and the showrunner was like, what do you think to the staff writer? And the staff writer was like, um, I think that's above my pay grade. <laughs> and they were oh like, God. no, 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 no. Your pay grade is telling me what you think. <laughs> so, you know, I just think just really pay but, attention. To and find a way to, if you're too intimidated to speak up, find a way to make yourself useful. I know a lot of staff writers who become the note card writer. Mm-hmm. Be that guy. Mm-hmm. Be the one who's up at the board doing all the, like, the stuff that nobody else wants to deal with and keeping everybody organized. Find some niche to keep yourself valuable. Because you are there to learn. But Absolutely. You know, also, I think that is don't be afraid to ask questions because... You know, your showrunner has a vision of the show, and if it's not articulated to you correctly, or you're not, for some reason, you're not speaking the same language, you know, ask. You know, say, I'm not sure I get that. Like, don't be intimidated that you have to know everything. They're not expecting that from you. We're all going to fuck up, trust me. When you go to set your first time, you'll fuck up as well. But just don't be afraid to ask questions, you know. They want you to do well. They're paying you, you know, so. Yeah. Listen a lot, too. Listen a lot. Get a feeling of the tenor of the room and, and what the dynamics of the room. I've been in so many rooms where a staff writer will come in and 
he or she will be completely antithetical to the the style of the room. This, you know, especially a, I mean, especially a show that's been going on for so many years as as, as Supernatural has. I think that it, it has its own dynamic. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, oh yeah. So um, so so uh, I really think it's important to listen and and to be of service in 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 any way you can. But I, you know, sit sit back just a little bit. Wait until you get a feeling, and then start, and then you can just run off like a like a train, you know. Yeah, and listen to the music of the room because it's like a group process, and you you're all merging into one giant brain, and that brain exists already on that show because it's been around for a while. So um, I think exactly what you were saying. It's like the one of the biggest mistakes I think sometimes staff writers make, and I made when I was younger is that you, you you say no or you that the train is going and the music's starting and you're like, but, what? You know, like, and so just understand riffing is good. It's jazz. You got to, like, jump in and be like da-da-da-da-da and add, add to it versus stopping it or changing the tempo until you're so good at knowing what the tempo is, then you can, you know, change it. Um, but, yeah, just, just kind of, like, constantly be adding little notes and... And don't take too long to order lunch because there's always one guy in every room and it's always super annoying. <laughs> Am I right? There's always one person and then lunch is there at like two. Don't be that guy. It's important. You'll learn you this. I'll order lunch at 10.30. I've ordered for tomorrow already. Yeah. Uh, you guys I must have some questions for these folks. They're all very uh, learned. Yes. Get your hands off. Uh, I have a question for Gary and for Vina. Um, quick separate question. No offense, you guys. Um, for Gary, I, in the first season of Justified, it felt like there was more one-off episodes and less mythology. I mean, there was still the mythology. Yes. And this year, it was more mythology, and there's still a couple. I would love to know um, how that's decided and if the network pushes back and says, no, we need more one-offs and, and how, how that worked out. Uh, and should I wait and do my Vina question okay. after? And the Vina question is, just going from cold case to a cable show, mm. um, I'm assuming a much smaller staff. And it was also a remake of a, of a show. How did you dole out episodes? How was how how it working with a smaller staff? And what, did you, what kind of stuff did you read to staff people? Because it's not a procedural, so that's that. Yeah, I think on Justified, it was a learning curve, you know? I mean, I think when we first came in, Graham's original concept for the show, I think, was to have one-offs, you know, more procedural, like there would be caper every... Um, and then it was literally, you know, a response from our viewers that told us... Um, what they were craving. And so we listened to it. And so when we came back in the second year, we realized what our gold was, was Boyd, Braylon together, right? And then what was really phenomenal about this season was that we created that family, you know, Mags and the boys, the Bennett boys. And we realized that every, as soon as we got our first dailies back from Margot Martindale, which I'm so proud of her, she did an amazing job this season. And um, when we got those jellies back, we thought, oh, my God, we have to spend lots more time with them, right? And that little girl, she's amazing. So then that became like, okay, that's, what we're, that's, our, that's our A story, definitely all the time, you know? And then our B story became the caper, one every three episodes. And it's very hard in that show because it had, you know, marshals, federal marshals do very limited things. And so we had to really, you know, sparse that out. You know, we had the pregnant fugitive and we had the oxygenarian and then we placed them on the board and then we sort of weave in all that mythology. But we realized going into the second season where the gold was and that was our main characters pointing them at each other and developing those interpersonal relationships. One thousand percent. I have to say that FX is um, a great place to develop. They believe, John Langreff really believes in supporting the auteur and, you know, Graham vision, even if he, you know, differentiated, you know, differed from it a little bit at what times, 
always back to the creator. That's a great place to work. Uh, so the question was difference cold case Smaller killing. Stuff, and yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, well, we did. It was starting as far as the original. It was taking the bones of that, the foundation of the original, from literally the pilot, and then as time goes on and as days unfold, you know, making it different. Um, and as far as just the mechanics of the staff, it was a smaller staff, but it was a short. It was a thirteen order episode versus twenty four in cold case. Um, and then the other difference was we spent. And it was such a different animal because it's a serialized show that in Cold Case, again, you come in two weeks, these are stories, pitch, pitch, pitch. This is what's happening with the characters, our cops. Um, not that much, so you know we don't have to spend too much time doing it. Um, but in, in The Killing, we, would, we literally said, I had half the staff watch the original and half the staff not watch it. So they came, we all came in, and I didn't want people to come in with preconceived notions. And like what you had said, there were signposts along the way that we knew potentially we could hit and we might hit, but let's, because it's a day per episode, let's just sit in these people's shoes. So what does it, we, we went to the morgue, we did a ton of research, we hung out with parents who had lost their children who were very, very generous in giving us their time. And instead of saying these are our preconceived notions of, what a parent would go through or what a cop would go through or what a politician would go through. Let's just bring in the world and then sit in a room and say, what would I do today? Like, what's the first thing you do when you get the call? You go to the morgue, you know, all of that. Um, so that process was much, was so rich. And so it was, it was longer too. It was about a month of sitting in the room and saying, what if, what if, what if, and then going to, and then assigning scripts and then writing. Just want to add to Vina's thing that um, on your show this year, you feel that that, that history and that research that those you did because mm-hmm. the relationship between Brent <clears throat> and Michelle, you know, is so great, and and, and you feel the great loss in the kids mm-hmm. when they want to know that scene where the kids say, you know, where is she? Want to come back? Tell us the truth. You mm-hmm. know, it's just the details. It seems very um, honest. Oh, it's brutal. Uh, other questions? <laughs> um, I just had a question uh, more to, I mean, you, you worked in uh, the animated realm yeah. and not so much. Uh, and just sort of the differences between, I guess, the, the processes and approaching, um, like, what is considered to be not so much over the top, but just, you know, something that's broached a little more in, in the animated world over something that's, you know, uh, like a typical sitcom, you know, with sets that you're going to come back to every week and stuff. And so I guess my question is... Um, is there like a, a holding back in your process of stuff where it's like, no, this might be too much, you know, because there's shows nowadays like uh, 30 Rocker Community that are going a little more over the yeah. top. But if you're sorry, this is such a. No, I understand question. what you're saying. Yeah, I think okay. I, I, I can address it. Um, you obviously have more of a license in animation and The Simpsons and American Dad. and I know Family Guy and all that than you ever do because you have a whole world you can just create automatically. And for some reason. You, I, not for some reason, but you can you can uh, accept racism, uh, you know, uh, you know, all, uh, homophobia, everything that is 
is on PC on television, you can do in these shows, obviously. And it's 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 crazy because you know my favorite show growing up as a kid when I was a kid was All in the Family, you know, and it, you will never see a character like that anymore ever. And it's such a tragedy because he was he was just the greatest character ever. Um, but you only have those characters or those people who can say these things now in animation. So the license is huge. Um, it was, I hate to keep bringing up Third Rock because I've had half of my career since Third Rock, but the beauty of Third Rock was you could always say that these people were aliens. They didn't know uh, the world and they didn't know what they were saying was wrong. And you could always argue with the that's network. That's what I say about my studio. grandma when she's Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> right. No. And, and you could get away with that, that these people all had uh, Alzheimer's. And, um, <laughs> and that was a beauty and freedom of writing Third Rock because they could say anything they wanted and it was acceptable. And they said some very un-PC things. And... Uh, yeah, it was just, it was wonderful. That was a living cartoon. That was as close to a living cartoon as, as I've ever written for. Uh, I'm going to take two more questions after this, and I'm, we're not leaving until I get two more. <laughs> I, I actually responded to something Bob said about, how, about those first 13 Third Rocks and how freeing it was not to have to listen to an audience. And I think since then, particularly with the internet, there is so much more of a sense of people constantly responding to the work you're doing, even as you're doing it. And I'm yeah. wondering, I'd like to hear from all of you about to what extent do you take that in and to what extent do you disregard it? As television impresario, Jeff Greenstein. <laughs> Jeff, by the way, is the first person who hired me on staff. Uh huh. He, Jeff hired me uh, in 1992 on Dream On, and we've become such close friends and, and co-writers on a couple things. But if you don't, if you don't mind if I say one story about Jeff, I've got to say a story. <laughs> I uh, attack this onto your episode. <laughs> what drove me into the uh, what what allowed me to come into the business was the spec Larry Sanders that I had written in the very first year of Larry Sanders, where only two episodes had been uh, aired, and I was working at Amblin as a um, as a, I guess a co doing coverage on director's reels. And I got a couple director's reels of Todd Hollins who had directed Larry Sanders show and they had never aired. And this, this show had just aired. And um, I wrote a Larry Sanders very quickly and it, uh, it got me my agent. And within two months I was offered a job on Larry Sanders from the spec script, which never happens. <laughs> um, and I met with Gary Shandling and, and other people on, on the show that will remain unnamed. And when I went there, I was just, I was literally a kid and I was like, oh, God, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. and it, it was the rudest meeting I still to this day had ever taken. I was pitching ideas and one of the, the, the head writer was, his back was torn towards me and he was putting balls into the wall and other, another writer was staring out the window and it was just devastating. And I left. I'll never forget this. I See, left. Be nice. Yes, no it, was, it was nothing. No and I and I left. And I went to my car. And I started crying, because my entire life I had wanted to be in the business, writing now for comedies. And this is what I thought the television industry was. By the time I got home, I had already received an offer on the show, and uh, to be a staff writer as my first job as as on sitcoms. And I said to my agents, you know, uh, I knew that I had a meeting at Dream On the following week. And I said to my agents, you know what? I'm going to wait to accept this offer because I have this meeting at Dream On. And I just, I want to see because I, in my head, could not imagine writing with and for those people. 
and um, and uh, I never seen Dream On. I wa- it was in its fourth season. It did not have the buzz. It had quadruple the ratings that Larry Sanders did on HBO, but it didn't have the buzz. It just it was just a show. And I watched the show. I liked the show. And I went in to pitch what I thought was just a freelance assignment uh, the following week to Jeff and uh, his partner, Jeff. And the minute I walked in there, it was everything that I expected the industry to be. It was the absolute categorical opposite. And I left there having hope for the business. Literally, again, by the time I got home, I got an offer not to do a a, a script, but to be on staff. And I told my agents, that's where I have to be. And it's it, it's this no asshole rule. Yeah, uh, you Jeff know? is the hero. It's of this nice. no asshole rule. I just can't stand to be around assholes and people who make you feel less than you are. You know, I do that enough to people. I don't need people to do that to Done me. Done here tonight. Yes, exactly. So that I mean, that is just a story. It's, uh, my friendship for Jeff, but also my the way I've I've dealt with the whole business. You really just want to be hopefully in rooms with people you love, and uh, and pick not necessarily what's the most buzzed about or money every time i do that i fail every single time unequivocally fail when i pick what i know from my gut is the people i want to work with and the show i want to work for always always success comes from that even if it's not a success i always end up working with those people and the the career it gives you a career and not just the moment of buzz so that's my advice does that answer your question? <laughs> did, you get, did you get the attention you wanted? Yeah. What was your question, was you asshole? Question? <laughs> it was about the internet. I remember it. <laughs> and it about, I, I've never... Well, his question was about, you know, how are we affected by the message boards? Is that it? And the fan reactions? Yeah. And I, I can answer, I have no idea because I've never been on a hit enough show that the message boards <laughs> go crazy enough. And I'm serious. Parenthood's the first thing I've written on that's really gotten a lot of buzz. But our fan boards, which I try to not watch, but it's hard not to. But ours are all autistic parents talking about how much the show means to them and gives them hope and joy. The parents so, are autistic? <laughs> did I phrase that wrong? Did I stutter? The parents of autistic oh, children. That's good. Yes. Or children with autism, you have to say, because now it's not PC to say. You can't even say autistic anymore, but I guess... You can in animation, yeah. I was about to make that joke. Fuck. That's why I can't be in a comedy room. Not only do you have to make the joke, you have to make it fast. So my answer is no, I don't really... You guys must have had some vocal fans on The Middleman. We did. That was a but, real niche kind of cult show. It, that was a show that we wrote in such a vacuum because we wrote most of the episodes before it really started airing. And so by the time the, the fan boards were going crazy, we were all, we were like breaking episode eleven at that point. So we no, we didn't pay attention to those people, but we appreciated everything they said. <laughs> On Justified, when we came back our second season, uh, it had gotten a really good reception, and um, they had looked at the fans and saw what they were saying, and it actually coincided with sort of Graham's vision for the show, which was pretty awesome. And so that, I mean, that's the only way that it affected us. It sort of just confirmed his sort of vision. It was like, yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Um, Yeah, I actually, uh, I I don't read the boards at all because I'm terrified of what people are going to say. The only thing I read were were some of the reviews. And then I don't know if you felt this way on The Shield or if you guys felt this way on your shows, but it started to feel like 
um, reading anything started to become heroin. Like you, you were just like yes. getting too into I it, agree. and then you were too vulnerable to it. I so agree. whereas before, like with Third Rock or your show, is you know we had the space and the silence of just us and kind of being like, is this good? Is this interesting? We like it. You know, we like the story we're telling. And then all of a sudden, all these people are weighing in, and you're just like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. And then the minute someone says something, even a tiny bit mean you're just crying and on the floor and oh my god I hate myself and I'm terrible and this is this is all a failure and I was just like I can't like this this is like a roller coaster it's awful it affects you so much I actually I actually believe that the writers of the show understand what's working and what's not working I really do believe that I don't think they need to be told by the public I think it's wonderful that the public can chime in and 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 definitely you get a sense of what they like, but it's usually what I think the staff likes themselves. Mm-hmm. You feel a show going off in the wrong direction when you're on the staff and uh, you try to rein it back. I don't know if you need, and it is it is heroin. It is, I remember when Sam, Samantha Who started, I was, uh, you know, and it's ridiculous. I, it's just, it's silly. It is and it's, silly. And it's, and it's hard enough anyway. It like, is hard enough. When you, because you get it from, there's the message boards and then there's Joe Public and you're, you're like, well, I work on the show. And they're like, well, you know what I think. <laughs> you know, and then there's the pitch, and you should really do this story, and your casting is not so good, and what's up with the hair? And it's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Can I tell uh, my favorite review story, though? I wish you would. I was just about to ask. Uh, Sarah, do you have a favorite review story? Because review. reviews are always so painful and awful, but I was in <laughs> Vegas for a weekend, the weekend that People Magazine happened to randomly review the Sci-Fi Channel movie I wrote, and they reviewed it as dumb but fun, and so I proceeded to get hammered in Vegas at a bachelor party and tell everyone that I was dumb but fun, and I proved. <laughs> I did very well for myself that night. <laughs> Uh, any other questions we've heard on previous panels how difficult it is to get a writing representation I'm curious when in your career you got representation and what was it that led to that representation anyone can start I think some of you sort of already answered this because you were working or you were hired and then Got representation after that, but no, I mean, the way I got it when again, I, it was very. I was in college. Uh, I, I, I don't actually. The business has changed so much, and representation has changed so much, and there's so many fewer agencies now than there there were in 1989, when uh, or 88 when I sent out these letters. But I sent out. 160 letters to 160 different agents and said, hi, my name is Bob Cashel. I have a comedy group in Los Angeles. Here's a copy of my, uh, here's a copy of my, my review. And I highlighted every review and I said, I just wrote a spec wonder years. This is how long ago it was. And, uh, it's about this. And if you want to know how it turns out, send me the self-addressed band envelope and I'll send you the script. And within a, a week I got, Probably a hundred and you know, ninety eight percent of them were no's, uh, but thank you. And eight of them said yes, they'd like to read the spec. And then uh, within a week of that, two people said they wanted to represent me. So it's crazy. I don't know though if it works that way anymore. I I mean, and that was one agent. Then I got I got another agent after that from a completely different Chris Silverman, who's now like I said, is the president of ICM, who I never talked to. Uh, He. he, uh, it was that was a whole different thing. It was me again working at Amblin, uh, uh, somebody reading my script at Amblin, sending it to their friend who said that they would send it to this is true, send it to their friend, and that friend happened to be the girlfriend at the time of 
a junior agent at Broder, uh, and that was Chris. And he read it. I was his first client, and he was what I like to say my first big agent. So. Yeah, mine, mine was a friend of a friend thing too. And I got in on the feature side because this is back, you know, before I had done anything. And so I had written a, a feature spec. And so a friend of a friend sent it to some guy he knew at Broder. And so he really loved the feature sample. And I said, well, I really want to write TV. And so they brought in, like, they wheeled in, like, like their lowest level TV <laughs> agent and, like, just stuck him in the meeting. And then it's funny because, like, that agent and I have now had this, like, incredible 10 year growth and relationship together. And that feature agent, you know, left long ago, and I've had no success on the feature side. <laughs> um, Other I think than dumb but fun. My first agent, I was again. It was about being. I was ignorant. I was doing plays, and I I didn't know that you weren't supposed to call off the head of ICM. Yeah. During that period of time, it was in the eighties. Um, I was in New York. I was a waiter for seven fucking years. <laughs> Two years at the Odeon, five years at Cafe Luxembourg, and I could serve America fucking dinner. And, um, and I was putting out my plays, and I was, and I used to wait on all these very famous people all the time. And I was, I was, you know, I just really loved what I did. And I was doing a little play at this Cabicula Theater on 51st between 9th and 10th. And I, you know, Sam Cohn, who was, you know, legendary ICM agent, um, used to come in all the night for dinner and stuff like that. And so I was putting in my play, and I thought, I'm going to get that motherfucker in my theater. <laughs> and so I called ICM, and I was like, Sam Cohn, please. And they were like, who's calling? I was like, Gary Lennon. I know, I'm sorry, I didn't say Gary Lennon. This is how I got in. I was like, Rupert Pupkin. And he was like, Who? And I was like, Rupert Pupkin. And that was the guy from The King of Comedy, yeah. you know? And so all of a sudden I got, hello. <laughs> True story. But the, this is added to, added to the thing was that I was doing a play with this girl who I'm currently, who's actually pretty, ironically producing my next play. Her name is Alicia Hogue. Her name now is Alicia Adams. But her mother is Alice Arlen, who wrote Silkwood with Nora Ephron. Mm. And she happened to be in my play. And it was so funny because at the opening of my play was this trash can, this girl getting screwed behind the trash can. And she was like, Gary, my mother's coming tonight. Do I have to do doggy style? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and um, anyway, she got, she got uh, Alicia's mom, Alice, came to see my play. And she brought friggin' Sam Cohn. And um, long story short was he was very generous at the end of the play. He said, you should be working. And I said, I know. <laughs> and he, uh, his son um, winded up buying my play and then doing it as a film called Drunks. It's with like Faye Dunaway and all ICM clients. <laughs> and Diane Weiss. <laughs> and um, that was sort of my entree into the world. But you know what? I, I want to say to all of you, because I really believe this, because I was that kid who didn't have any relationships in the yeah. business or anything like that, and didn't, as I said, graduate high school. That's why I believe everyone can do this. But um, and I believe that other people want to help. So that was a, a writer extended her hand to me, Alice Arlen, and I never forget that. And so other writers, I believe writers want to help other writers. So you know, go out there and try to get your stuff read. Yeah, well, my story isn't very interesting. Basically, I had just gotten staffed through the Disney thing on Push Nevada, and then all of a sudden, the, all the agencies were like, oh my God, who is this person, and why did they get staffed without us? And so it was dinners and drinks and drunkenness, and that's how I got my first agent. <laughs> that's the easy way to get an agent. But, uh, by the way, I also believe that, that if you have an agent, it doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. Yeah. They do nothing <laughs> except the, no. They they do so much. They really do. But you really have to be a part of it. You really have to be a part of it. I 
texted Christina Applegate about the show that she's on this year. I sent Way to Go myself to, to John Plowman in England. It was a, a contact that I had made myself. Um, I... You know, through through various things, it's just you've got you've got to you've got to play your cards too. You can't just sit back and let somebody else do it. I think that happens a lot, and I don't think it works. One other just piece of advice is I think agents are really happy with clients like yourself or who are always generating new material because you know an agent hates the idea when you call them up and you're like, "What's happening? Dead, deadly." But if you, I see like writing a new script as a gift and you're actually writing it, giving it to someone and inviting all these incredible people to your party. And so always look to create new business opportunities for yourselves by creating new scripts uh, because that's what they love. They love clients who create new material all the time because it makes their job easier. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it, and it goes a long way. And we t- I think we talked about this last time when you can do uh, so much of this networking on your own. You know, so much of this business is knowing the right people at the right time and, and then having the right material ready, you know, and, and, and an agent or a manager will, will uh, appreciate that too. Uh, what are you watching on TV these days? What do you love? Just go down the Justified. Line. Well, sure. <laughs> oh, game, okay. Game of Thrones and Real Housewives of Orange County are oh, against yes. each other, and that's devastating to me. Wow. <laughs> Good one, though. Yeah. Um, honestly, AMC, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Killing. Um, I still like Dexter. Justified and Mob Wives. <laughs> I, I, ironically, I don't watch any comedy. Uh, it's Mad Men. Uh, uh, what did you say? Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, which awesome. I think is I, I have not seen the killing yet. I have it on okay. TiVo. Cool. Uh, I will be watching it. Um, I really do. Uh, Breaking Bad, I think, is the one of the greatest shows of all time, mm-hmm. ever. Well, but you've yeah. seen The Wire, right? Totally. Uh, I've not. <laughs> I've not seen Bomb. The Wire. I know. I know. I'm told this every day. I get uh, a lot of shit about it too. It's like it's like I've got to do. Get the DVD. Yeah. Why and then watch. People yeah. are like, I'll send them to you. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> I would have brought them tonight. My father. Uh, I introduced my dad uh, and mother to the uh, to Breaking Bad, and my <laughs> my father passed away in June. And I said to him a couple of weeks before he passed away, I said, "Do you have any regrets?" And he said, yeah, I got one regret. I'm not going to see season four of Breaking Bad. And that is the absolute (laughs) truth. And, you know, obviously, you know... That he, that's how much he loved the show, and I I was able to tell Vince Gilligan that, uh, who created the show, and it just knocked him dead. I mean, wow. and that's yeah, he died. Part. That's why Vince died. It's <laughs> just a shame, but uh, uh, yeah, all it's all drama and Game of Thrones, which I'm not oh. sure I like. What? Oh, Do I like it? I don't. Guys, I don't know why you watch like it. it. I don't know why I'm it's watching like it. It's like Lord of the Rings with extremely graphic sex. What's not to like? The sex isn't that graphic. Both parts of that that you said. It's not. The sex is not that graphic. It's not graphic enough. I want to see some good medieval sex, and I'm not. I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing people kill dogs. I'm seeing things I don't necessarily need to see. So uh, I don't know. Uh, Vina, you're watching Game of Thrones. I'm not. No, I'm, <laughs> Good I'm for going you. to, though. Um, oh. 30 Rock. I was watching Community, uh, which is a great show. It is great. Huge Breaking Bad, fanatic Breaking Bad fan. Um, not a lot of time to watch, but my guilty pleasures are Intervention and um, Real Housewives. <laughs> yes. Like Atlanta. Oh, what were you saying? <laughs> Atlanta. I was just saying I watch American Idol. Oh, yeah. yeah. Big American Idol fan. It's fine. 
Or hilarious network notes. So that'll be our last. I have a funny standards and practice note. On the middleman, we had a situation where we had a duck get stuck in a warp hole, as ducks are prone to do, like flying through the thing. And so we were going to be shooting the like you could see the side that was like in our reality, but not that was in like the alternate universe. So it was like half a duck and shooting from behind. And so we got this big like legal note asking us to ensure that we did not show the butthole of the duck, (laughs) which led to like a really long conversation about like can, does a duck have a visible butthole like where is the butthole so then who had to google that so, oh we totally made our writer's assistant she printed out like page after page we're looking at like we're googling like duck butthole and then so of course when the duck wrangler shows up with the duck all the whole writing staff is like and then she's like what are you doing we're like just don't worry about it just yeah that was a weird one it's a and no, you can't see the butthole of the duck. <laughs> Wait, do they have a butthole, though? Well, the poo comes out somewhere. <laughs> the, 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 a standard of practice, but that's always the funny, standard of practice notes, far funnier than network or studio notes. But that they, I don't remember what show it was, but they wouldn't allow us to say D-bag, but they would allow us to say douchebag. We weren't allowed to say D-bag. Oh, we really? actually got a network note saying we can't say D-bag because it's short for douchebag, and we wrote back saying, no, it's short for dirtbag, and they said, oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> good. good. Clever. We just use douchebag. We just use douchebag. Well, good, then we're done. Uh, <laughs> Thank you guys so much. First of all, thanks to 826LA. Visit their website, 826LA.org. They're always looking for volunteers and for your money. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries at Meltdown Comics, especially Ed, who is back there paying close attention to every word we said. Give my guests a round of applause. Sarah Watson, Gary Lennon, Bob Cushell, and Vina Sood. We'll see you next week. Now go home and watch The Killing. Now leaving Nerdist.com.